Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having. We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here. We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Bold SLP podcast. This is Desi, and I'm here with Lisa and Ingrid, and I'm also here with Deanna Morris. She is a Dominican-American Afro-Latina licensed clinical social worker. Uh, She was raised in the Dominican Republic in New York City. She lives in upstate New York currently and is raising two bilingual boys alongside her husband, who is a non-native speaker of Spanish. Deandra is super cool because she has an awesome account called Bilingual Playdate. This is an Instagram account where she spends her time directly talking to parents and educators of bilingual children. She uses Bilingual Playdate as a platform to highlight resources for parents and educators of bilingual children. And she provides education around language variations, linguistic oppression, and supports the intentional use of Spanish in all different contexts. Um, Deandra also creates uh, bilingual social emotional learning educational resources with Michaela Martinez, who is a a project-based kindergarten teacher. And she translates those materials to Spanish so that she can increase access to quality educational resources. The other welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay! <laughs> We're so happy you're here. Yeah, we can't believe you're here. But the first thing I wanted to mention to you before we keep going, you are actually, I believe, the second non-speech pathologist guest on our podcast. So um, again, not that that's you know, I'm glad that we're we're switching it up. I think it's so mm-hmm. great to have people from other disciplines come on. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy hearing about from you is a term that I feel like you've kind of coined at this point, the bilingual parenting mental load. So can you come on up and tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Um, oh my God, it's so funny that you say that because I do feel like I coined it. Um <laughs> I mean, I see it now here and there of other people mentioning, but I'm like, I definitely started that. But the bilingual parenting mental load, it really, I guess like the term came to me because I was in pandemic parenting, like a lot of us. And I was noticing just how much during the pandemic, I had control over my children's Spanish input because we were home, we were alone, no one was there, there was nothing to worry about we're here, you know, we're doing our thing. But then as the pandemic guidelines and rules started getting more like loosey goosey, things started changing. And I had to then, then I had different worries start kind of come up for me. And what did it mean for preschool? What did it mean for so many things, you know, especially because my oldest was one when the pandemic started. And then, you know, as we were kind of sort of quote unquote, exiting the pandemic, he was three now. And I was starting to think about preschool and a lot of worries kind of came for me, came up for me. And so I started my therapist 
brain started thinking about like, oh my God, this is like when people talk about like moms have a mental load. And I was like, yeah, but this is different because this is not about motherhood. This is like me and my husband are both equally worried about a lot of things in terms of bilingualism. So this is kind of like the bilingual parenting mental load. And then I started thinking more about that and what that meant. And I was like, yeah, it's like those worries and fears that you have, but you don't feel that other people understand or get, um, which makes, from a therapy standpoint, it makes the worry get bigger because we're not talking about it and we don't think other people can relate. And so I was like, I wonder what would happen if I start posting about it. I wonder if other people would feel like they can relate to this. And so I started kind of creating graphics that would highlight the different thoughts that I was having but also the ones that my friends were sharing with me without obviously anonymous I'd never shared like who told me but it started sparking conversation about like oh my god I also worry about that and I know you know we all have some level of worry in terms of bilingualism especially in the U.S. because it's almost like an uphill battle at times um so yeah so that's kind of where that that all originated from pandemic parenting <laughs> but oh parenting yeah. You are speaking to me. <laughs> My son was, um, yeah, 10 months when the pandemic started. I don't know if we've ever connected over that, but um, I was telling my husband, because we have a baby, um, you know, I, fe I felt this time around things have been so much harder for me in the sense that so much less was under my control. Like my mm -hmm. son was home. So when he was born, first four months of his life, he was home hearing Spanish when he went to daycare finally he only went for about six months and then everything shut down so right. then he was home from 10 months till about uh 14 or 15 months so really the first 15 months of his life like he really heard spanish all the time and so i definitely coming out of the quote-unquote pandemic like you said i i feel like a lot of people kind of shifted into this new reality where you entered the pandemic with the baby and you came out with a toddler and you were just like, what happened? happened. And like, yeah. yeah, that happened to all of us on this podcast, by the way. So um, I know that I'm I'm speaking to the right crowd, but what do you think the impact is on kids then if there's a, if there's a parenting mental load, right? A bilingual parenting mental load, what does that look like for the kids? I think that there is also a mental load for the child, like the bilingual child mental load. And oh my God, it's, I'm fascinated just thinking about it even deeper, like thinking about me growing up, but thinking about my kids and like how diverse, like we can't narrow it down to like one thing because everyone obviously thinks and processes things differently. But for children, especially kids who were only maybe exposed to Spanish for the longest time and then they have to kind of like the band-aid is like taken off like we're ripping the band-aid and then you're dropped in more of an English like you don't even know like my my four-year-old really thought the world the entire world was bilingual like he thought everyone that he interacted with was bilingual because he saw bilingualism was so present like in his life and he wasn't exposed to anyone that wasn't really bilingual during the pandemic so you have kids thinking like okay well then who speaks what and they're trying to figure it out you know you have kids thinking about okay well what happens if I don't know the word and I say it in this in in Spanish because I don't know the word in English is someone going to get mad at me and you have them thinking about okay my four-year-old notices so much but he will be like oh this person doesn't like it when I speak Spanish 
like I don't know and that you have them be aware of that you have them um be aware of the change questions like why are you speaking English now mom like you never do that when we're home so you have all these things and that is the bilingual child mental load but we don't talk about it we think that kids for many I mean in many areas we just think that kids are just going to be flexible and they're just going to like you know they're just going to do what we tell them to do and they're going to be okay with it because they're robots but they're not robots they actually have all these thoughts they just don't always have the words to share them with us and I think for the bilingual child especially when I think about like SLP services or even like therapy services like what happens when you have a provider that you need for your well-being and then that person doesn't speak your language the language that you feel most connected to and so there's so many pieces that we don't discuss enough and do we don't prepare enough the parent or the child or even ourselves you are speaking so much truth. There are so many times too that you just said uh, things that I don't even think about. You're right. The number of times that my son will just kind of like stare at me when he doesn't know a word mm-hmm. in English and just, you know, kind of like smile at the person and hope that there's like some grace mm-hmm. um, on their part. But, um, you know, one of the things that we've discussed a lot amongst us on this podcast is the ways in which you know, we get this like prescriptive monolingualism and how scary it is. I know um, Ingrid in particular, um, I'll let her tell the story, but essentially, you know, the ways in which that we we get influenced um, and scared to share something like our language, especially in public settings. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that while I was listening because you were saying we, the mental load for the kids for me, like being dropped in that setting, like you mentioned, that's exactly what it feels like. And I didn't even realize the impact it had on me until I saw it reflected on my parenting and how scared I got the first time that someone commented at daycare about my child using Spanish words. I mean, they were 18 months, you know, like thinking about it, I get anxious. Mm-hmm. about them like being dropped into school without having English because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what happened to me and yeah because of my bilingual child load mental load experience mm-hmm. and that's okay and I think that that's the part that that also feeds the mental load when we think that what we're doing and the choice that is best for us is not going to be approved or seen as okay to do I don't think that everyone has the capacity to do bilingual parenting at all in a monolingual preaching society, you know, like we definitely had our own fears. Like I remember when my, my four-year-old now, but when he was starting preschool, he was only three and a half and he really had not been, again, we were in the pandemic for like two years. He came out at three. So only from three to three and a half was he getting more exposure to English, but you could tell that he wasn't super confident or like, want it like like was connecting to the language very much and so we had to like you know switch things up try to make it a little bit more fun for him you know expose him to like fun and happy people but when those people would make a comment like you were saying Ingrid about him using Spanish it would turn him off immediately and then he would be like well I don't want to speak like then I'm just don't want to speak to someone if they can't be bilingual and it was so like hard you know to like navigate that um so then I started doing I'm like fine then I'll do it because I know like you see me as a safe person so we're going to do 15 minutes of English every day until you start start preschool and then 
I won't do it after that. And that's what we did. And that worked for him. Um, and my goal was like, I wanted you to find your confident English voice because you have that in Spanish. And I wanted that for him in English because I can't imagine like kids need to be empowered to use their voice in any language and however we want to do it. But I don't think those conversations really happen in daycare or happen in um, preschool or in like school settings where like we want like we want to empower kids to communicate. We want that's the that should be the goal versus policing what language they're using at such a young age. Like 18 months is ridiculous. My my four-year-old, when he was two and a half, several people told him to speak English. And I thought that was like true insanity because I'm like, you understand that he's two and a half. Do you understand that they don't they don't speak in the same way that an adult? And you understand that it's so inappropriate to say that to a child. But people don't understand that. And that's why the bilingual parenting mental load continues to be fed because those mo those moments stay with us and through childhood, through adulthood, and we carry them on into our parenting for sure. Yeah. And later on, it's their peers, Deandra. Oh. Their peers. My gosh. I know I've told know. you guys this story. I don't know if we've recorded it before, but you guys know it. I tried so hard during the pandemic. We were doing lots of Spanish with my littlest one. I'm like, I'm not going to let this fear, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we were doing great. And she went to preschool back after everything opened up. And then after like six months of being in preschool, monolingual English and one day of Spanish, they like a lesson, you know, she goes, my friends say, I say everything wrong. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I tell them tigre and they're like, that's wrong. It's tigre or I say amarillo and they say, that's wrong. It's amarillo. And I was like, uh, you're saying it right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you just speak Spanish, like without an English accent, you know, like we have to have that conversation. And then like a few months would come go by and she's like, you know, mom, I don't think I'm speaking Spanish anymore. Like they just keep saying I say it wrong. So I'm done with it. And I just like was waiting for kindergarten where I knew like the people and the Spanish was every day and like. And it did changed her around. And I was so happy. I told uh, Lisa and Desi on her first week of kindergarten, she made a friend and she kept talking to me about her. And then I finally met her. And this little friend was a me. She was dropped in kindergarten. She didn't speak any English. And she befriended my daughter. And they would like, you know, with her, with her English and her with hers, you know? And I'm like, okay, like I did better the second mm -hmm. time around at like, managing the load <laughs> no you did fine the first time too I feel like it's if I think it's a reasonable thought and a reasonable course of action to decide to do things later when mm -hmm. you have other things that are more of a priority to you your child's safety your child feel feeling confident in that mm -hmm. space because of the school that you are sending your child to or the adults yeah. are maybe prepare that is responsible parenting like we all we made the decision of where she would go to kindergarten and where I started working mm -hmm. because of their bilingual department yeah and I think it's okay I think that sometimes this is what I want sometimes social media to be a better place for nuances conversations around different situations and how we can all get to the single I mean I I'm a sequential bilingual I did not speak any English until I was six years old and then I also was dropped off and 
fend for yourself. Sort of, I, I figure it out. I swim in there and I, you know, I figure it out. I was in second grade, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it doesn't, we can do, we can do it differently if we have support. And so for us, we got very lucky. Our preschool teacher spent the summer knowing that she was going to have a Spanish dominant child coming into her classroom basically reviewing her Spanish and like knowing different phrases like do you have to go to the bat like the things that she knew she needed to be able to say for a preschooler she learned those things and then she would also um, recast and say things in English once she knew what he was saying and so she worked with us which I was very thankful I'm like are you secretly following my account because I see you doing a lot of things I don't know if she follows me I don't think she does but I was like maybe she is and she's getting all these tips but she like would put signs up in Spanish even though my obviously my preschooler doesn't read but I could see that and it made me feel more connected to the classroom and there are so many things that we can do to help parents with the mental load as providers, as educators, and so many things we can do for the child too. I think that I was listening to someone, I can't remember what podcast, but it was basically saying, it's not a matter of if I'll get a bilingual child in my classroom, it's a matter of when. So if you are educating anyone and you are serving anyone, you need to be considering what are the things that bilingual children need and what are the things that are bilingual families need. And I was like, this is genius. That is true. It's not a matter of if, it's when. When are we going to encounter bilingual people? My story is like off, not quite the same journey, So because my parents were stressed as refugees in the war, they didn't teach us Tamil at all. So it was just English on my house. And then I was dropped into a French kindergarten. So the dropping is the same for all of us, but in a, so I'm in Quebec and that French is the first language. So I I often regret that my daughter doesn't know any, any Tamil at all, but Mm -hmm. all of us speak English. So it's not like she's lost access to her family or anything. Like all of us speak English. But while you were talking, I was just thinking that the other day I took her to the park and we were speaking in French. And then she broke out into English to tell me something. And a mother at the park said, wow, this was, no, it wasn't the other day. She was three. But she told me in French, wow, at three, she can speak English and French. And the mother was impressed. And for some reason, I was a little heartbroken because I was like, for sure, if she was speaking French and Tamil, you wouldn't have had the same pride for it. That is so sad, you know, and I feel like that is the biggest mental load, bilingual parenting mental load is the awareness that we all have that if English is not a part of the equation, people won't celebrate our bilingualism. And it's so heartbreaking that it's like English and something else or nothing or English first, How don't do anything else, English first, and then you can add whatever you want second, but it's not... There's not the same level of encouragement or pride or celebration when we're wanting to do our home languages. And then we have parents or grandparents who felt pressured to completely like not have it be a part of their lives because, I mean, I've talked to Ingrid about this. They literally have beat the language out of children. And so why would anyone want that for their kid? I understand why parents don't raise bilingual children um, or don't want to do it right away or want to do it later or want it to be like, you know, a different kind of format for their family based on their family history and their family trauma and 
the capabilities of the parents. I totally understand. And it is stressful. And it's so interesting bringing up this conversation right now for me professionally, because I'm at this point where, yes, the <laughs> even in Maine, all these bilingual children are coming out of the woodwork. And everyone's so surprised when I come to a meeting and I'm like, hey, this child is a dialectal speaker. Hey, the, you know, this child is a speaker of such language. And then they're like, but, but, and I think it's because it's never been asked before. Nobody's had interest in in doing the detective work and laying the groundwork for these children who speak or come from other linguistic backgrounds. Um, and even, um, you know, what you were saying about this, almost like, I call it gaslighting at this point, <laughs> like gaslighting but parents in gas reverse. Lighting. Let's do it. Yeah. Like, so, um, you know, I've been having conversations about, you know, bilingualism at work, you know, I'm the bilingual SLP, and people uh, say, oh, these parents, you know, they're Spanish speaking. And, you know, so before it used to be, oh, speak to your child in English. Well, now they kind of want to beat it into the parents that they need to speak Spanish and that they can't speak anything else to their kids. And I'm like, that's not fair. That's not fair. You cannot do that. You cannot go back to families and punish them or mistreat them for speaking English when English is the majority language. English is the end all be all in this country. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. when we talk about monolingualism, like people are consumed with English. And I think it's just so, I think it's part of that, of, of this whole equation that we're talking about. Like, why would you do something that is detrimental to your health? Um, and it could, you know, even if you can't fully communicate with your child because English is not your, you know, most comfortable language, why would you put yourself in a position where other people would question your parenting? Um, mm -hmm. So I find it, I find it really awful <laughs> to have to undo all this. We've made so much progress on, on like getting people to understand that people, you know, want to speak their home language. And now we're like, wait, 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 don't push it on them. Don't push it. <laughs> I know um, it's finding the balance and it's so hard to know what the balance is, but I feel like we don't ask enough questions to parents. Like I did a post that it was like 35 questions that you should ask if you're going to like, you know, start your bilingual parenting journey because so much depends on what the parent goal is because maybe their goal isn't to just speak Spanish for the rest of their life with their child. Maybe their goal is I want to speak Spanish to them for the, during their infancy, but once they get to like teenage years, I want to have more of a mixed family kind of like dynamic where we speak both languages, or I do want to speak to them for the first 18 years of their life only in Spanish. And then later on, I want to switch to English. I don't, we don't know. And we assume a lot and we don't like allow families to really define what their bilingual parenting goal is for themselves. But we also don't let children in on the goals. Like how about kids also decide what is it that they want to do? What is it that they feel comfortable? And how can we get to a place where everyone's needs are met, which is possible, but we think it's impossible or we has to be this like black or white way. And I'm like, how about let's embrace the gray? There's a lot of gray and there's a lot of flexibility when it comes to bilingual parenting and no one is like in charge, like no one is in charge, but parents always feel like providers are in charge. I mean, um, they turn to us for answers. They turn to us for direction and, 
we need to empower them. Like, what is it that you want to do? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be with the kids full time. And so we can tell them, oh, only speak the home language. And they're going to say, yes, ma'am, I'm going to do that. And then they're going to go home and they're not going to do that. And so the better question would be like, what what's getting in the way of speaking the home language? You know, what yeah. fears do you have? What worries do you have? And how can we, how can I support you? Because yeah. we don't know. I don't know for kids too. Like, how can I support you? You know, so a child rejecting Spanish, how can I support you? What is it about Spanish or what is it about, you know, letting people know that you speak Spanish that's making it so that you don't feel connected to the language anymore or safe speaking the language like let's let's talk about that because otherwise they're just internally growing their mental load and their worry and their anxiety over the language and language anxiety is a real thing I feel like that's like my next thing that I'm going to like really cover on my page language anxiety for kids and how the way you people perceive you the way you think people are perceiving you really impacts your ability to want to communicate confidently or communicate at all. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. It's that intersects so much with our work. So yeah. 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 That intersects so much with our work, uh, even with non-bilingual kids who have language disorders. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when they get in, into those grades, those, you know, upper fifth middle school grades, sixth, seventh and eighth, it's less the disorder and more the what are they going to say about how I talk or mm -hmm. that I take or how I sound. my words don't come yeah yeah and it's so hard and because teachers and we don't talk about this in school we don't normalize this one like some people need more time like some people are hearing hearing information they're digesting the information they need time to be able to like say what they want to say versus it's not like this for everybody you know and that's normal you know, not everybody needs to, you know, be a, what do I call that? Like, um, out loud processor. There are some people that are not out loud processor. They're in, like they're in their head and they need time to be able to process the information. But yes, it like all relates. And because we don't talk about it and because also our disciplines don't get, this is what I do love about Instagram is that I've been able to meet so many, like, SOP, so many psychologists, so many other social workers, so many teachers, and we're all having these conversations. And then we go back into our environments and we like change things up versus sometimes like when I was working in an agency and not having like my private practice, I was like in my agency bubble and I wasn't interacting as much with other disciplines and having these conversations that I knew were needed based on what my clients were reporting. And so I love that the world of social media has connected all of us. I think that that's the beauty of what your account is achieving, like especially creating a space that's not dominated by what you had mentioned about um, centering monolingualism or centering whiteness. And I know that that's something that, you know, you have recently taken on in your posts talking about the impact on BIPOC bilingual individuals and how there's a disproportionate treatment of those types of, of like families of color versus uh, families who are white and maybe choosing to become bilingual. Yeah, I actually, oh my God. So I actually had an SLP tell me this. And I was like the first moment that I was like, God, I never even consider this. But um, we were having a conversation and they said that they were very aware of how 
their content and them as a person was seen as more palatable than a BIPOC person or like or like my account like it would be easier for someone to go to their account and see them and be like follow versus like my account and I was just like oh my god I never even like I like knew it but I didn't like consider it and how this is playing out and then I started noticing more and similar to I mean the conversations that we've had about like even if you go through your following list or even like the people that you relate someone else pointed that out to me they were like it just seems like in the bilingual world there's so much whiteness and I was like let me look through my I want to I want to see and then I was like oh my god there is and for whatever reason these people are seen immediately as the experts I mean there were but I have called them out, but there have been white people who are SLPs or white people who are in other fields who randomly want to talk about bilingualism, but they have not lived a day in our lives. They don't have children that are, that they're raising bilingual. They don't have children that have a familial connection to this. They, they are just centering their voice in a situation that has nothing to do with them. And that is how this the race plays out and I think sometimes it's so normalized we're so used to having the white Spanish teacher like that I mean I I have done polls time and time and I'm like do you have a Dominican Spanish teacher do you have a Puerto Rican Spanish teacher do you have like people don't they're like no it's like a white person that learned Spanish and they're teaching my child and then their Spanish kind of like what you were saying Ingrid about your 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 daughter's experience at school then they're telling our kids that how they speak is wrong and there's like so much lack of awareness around you're doing a disservice like you think you're doing something really nice and really good because you're teaching kids Spanish but you're also you're oppressing the children whose language this belongs to or whose family has sacrificed so much to make this happen for that child. And so I feel very passionate um, about talking about this because so many people walk unaware of how they're causing harm when they think they're doing good. And take advantage of situations also where they are sometimes even making money off of it going back to like thinking about I know who you're talking about um on Instagram um if you want to know just send me a dm but uh, <laughs> uh no but I, I was I gonna know. say and I, was, I thought you were gonna say about the reason why we have this podcast well that too I was making I, money off of Spanish right, right so um yeah the reason that this podcast came about and Ingrid and I have talked uh, may I we've definitely talked about this at some point um you know it was the same thing it was uh somebody who did not have uh who, who was kind of of the same profile that you were talking about like somebody who was white who learned Spanish and began a money-making endeavor let's call it and it didn't center anything cultural anything having to do with linguistic variety like nothing it was literally like hey I'm gonna teach you to play pop the pig in Spanish I don't know how that makes you qualified to do speech and language therapy with a child from a minoritized background but you know like it's it's the same thing though um and it gets repeated across all these accounts when it's convenient when it's cute when it's a hobby hey let me tell you about linguist you know um yes. like language nutrition for your kid you know you want them to learn spanish don't you it's like 
like and I'm like all for it like if people want to raise raise awareness and actually connect people to the right resources then yes post about it and then please tell them these are all the accounts on Instagram or take the time to be in this community and learn about the community learn about who you should connect with but don't make a reel that you know is going to go viral because your account is large and this is a topic people care about and have so many things to say and then not even first of all give misinformation because again this is not your area of expertise but two not connect people leave the comments so that they're like a dump dumpster fire and people have to go rescue like I get tagged when someone makes a a reel or anything about bilingualism and it goes viral I get tagged so many times and then I go to the comments and like my heart actually breaks because the parents are asking for help and their their mental load is like exploding they're like putting their whole business out there and this person who made this reel didn't even consider that there are real life implications to the information that we're putting out on social media and thinking that languages are a hobby or a way to make money or profit is the most white capitalism thing I've ever even encountered in this space. Um, you're only seeing how you can make money versus how can you actually help people. And that's so sad to me that that people behave in this way. I'm just thinking about the the podcast, Nice White Parents. And there was a moment where this lady went up to like a heritage Spanish speaker and like in like broken French was like, you know, I'm going to France soon. And it's so important to be bilingual. You should think about it. You should think about visiting France one day, speaking to a fully bilingual heritage speaker, not even realizing that Spanish is a whole language and just like fully erasing that side. And it's like you forget what the meaning of bilingual is. Like you're just taking it as two languages, not two cultures, two lives, two full things mm -hmm. that you're just you're just taking the bits that will that you can profit off of and then leaving everything for the community to just pick up the pieces after it's, it's very sad it is very sad I had someone tell me okay so this is like I don't know might not rock your world the same as me but like it has for weeks I feel like it has haunted me so someone commented on one of my posts and said that there was a bilingual account that is constantly being tagged or seen as like the account to follow or the account to be connected to but the way that this person sees that account is like extracting the ling the culture out of the language and I was like what does this even mean extracting the culture out of the language and like for weeks I have spent time reflecting on that like how can someone do that but this is these are the little ways that people do that when they assume that bilingualism is a way to get ahead or that it's a way for their child to be able to um, put it on their resume or get a summer camp job. Like, like you don't understand. Like, if you're teaching your child that to be bilingual, like if you want to raise them bilingual, are you also teaching them that there are, you know, that these are all the countries where that language is spoken, that the language is spoken in diverse ways. Like that is how, I mean, I grew up in the Dominican Republic, but that is how I grew up. I had friends from all over Central and South America. So I knew always that Spanish wasn't spoken, that there was Dominican Spanish. And then that I went to my friend's house and her mom spoke um, Spanish from Venezuela and it sounded completely different, but I loved it. Like, are we having those conversations or are we telling our kids, 
that this is the one way it speaks Spanish and this is the one way it sounds and then putting them into the world so that they can then be linguistic oppressors of someone else. Like, what are we doing? We're not having those conversations. Then yeah, you are extracting the culture out of the language because you're pretending like we're a monolith. We're just, we operate in one way. We all look one way and this is how we are. <laughs> like it yeah. doesn't make any sense. And it's so harmful. I mean, it really goes back to that idea that you were saying we we love that in in the U.S. especially. I don't know, Lisa, if you feel this way um, in Canada, but in the U.S. we 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 want to be so cohesive to the point where we lose a sense of who we are, or like people want us to lose a sense of who we are. And I think that that's actually the opposite. Like I know for my family when they came here, I mean, my grandparents still don't speak English and they lived in this country for over 50 years. You know, I they they embrace the fact that they can make these decisions and they have the freedom to make those decisions here where, you know, they and, and they were exiled from Cuba. So like they didn't they didn't have freedom in their own country. So it's it's kind of ironic that we talk so much about freedom and yet we want people to fit in boxes. And it's mm -hmm. disturbing to me. Absolutely. I, especially like in the school setting, like, I mean, I, as you guys know, have very strong opinions about how even English as a second language services are provided to like five-year-olds. I, okay, well, the, the part that I'm mostly fascinated is that for some reason, we believe immersion works when the child speaks English first and we drop them in Spanish immersion. And we think like that works, they got it. But the other way around, like you were, you know, angry, like your situation or my situation, we don't think that works, but it doesn't work in this situation because we don't provide the same supports that we provide for the kids that we drop off in Spanish immersion. It's not that immersion doesn't work. It's the way, the complete opposite ways that we go about it. For these children, we punish them because they came in with the language that's opposite from the school. But for these children, we celebrate that they came in with a language that is opposite from the school and we believe that they can learn. And so that's the part that fuels my fire and my passion for this work is that it is so disproportionate and there is so much whiteness that makes it that for it to continue to be disproportionate because the Spanish immersion schools are for white people. <laughs> like they're not for us and they're not where we live. They're very, they're in their neighborhood. They're, they, we don't have access to them. And the school, the other schools, the public schools, which I just call English immersion because that's what they are, don't serve our kids either. So it's like, ni de aquí ni de allá, we don't fit in either, in either camp. And then kids feel that way too. And so it's like this really bad cycle. Um, even though there are professionals like all of us out there trying to do the hard work, it's just, Sometimes it does feel like an uphill battle. Like, how are we going to get through this when the systems in place continue to oppress our kids and oppress our language? You just made me think of Jose Medina. We've got to create a Les Madre. we got to create this Madre. I love Les Madre all the time. Love him, love him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to actually give you guys... Um, my last word because we're coming up to the end but also because the word that has uh, really stood out to me today in this conversation is nuance and having nuance to see the complexities uh, the power dynamics 
the relationships between language and culture. I mean, that's what we always talk about here, but I think it's so nice to hear somebody else from a different profession talk about these nuances because this is the space we always live in. I, as usual, am breaking the rules, unless you guys can help me like you always help me. But the thing I'm taking away from this conversation is the concept of lightening the load. Um, uh, how we have so many tools as speech language pathologists to lighten that mental load for bilingual parents, uh, lighten the load for teachers who are struggling with servicing bilingual kids. It's just like Deandra telling me, hey, it's not that you chose wrong the first time. It's that you chose different and that's fine. Like just her uh, words of affirmation, like I feel lighter already. Um, and I know that I do that in my practice, and that's what I love about being a bilingual therapist and the population that I serve, but I hadn't called it this before. I'm helping lighten the load of a lot of parents that I come into contact with just because I am bilingual. Mm-hmm. I have two ones that I'm trying to go between. So I have embraced the gray, which I thought was so beautiful, but it might tie into the nuance that Desi was saying. And the other one I thought was fun and so true is not if but when mm-hmm. they're coming there's there's bilingual children everywhere multilingual multicultural don't be shocked every time you get one it's not if but when like we're all here yes um and my word I have two too but I'm gonna pick one so I'm gonna tell you both but I'm gonna expand on the one okay so my word is flexibility and partnership and so like flexibility I think goes with nuance, like being flexible, taking everything into consideration, but partnership is like how important it is. Like, that's what I love about social media, but this could be happening in real life. Like we could be partnering with each other in our communities, in our schools, in our settings a lot more. And sometimes we don't think it's possible, but really no one makes the rules. Like anything is possible. There's no one way to do it. Well, that is a beautiful thought and we will leave it there. Thank you so much for coming. This was so wonderful. Please come back. We have some really exciting news for you today. Our course is officially launching in June of 2023, just in a few short weeks. If you haven't heard, we've been working on a course, the three of us together here at the Bold SLP podcast, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. We are very excited to share it with you this summer. We want to be in community with the SLPs, students, other professionals who sign up and just really work at understanding the limitations of traditional evaluation methods. Dig deeper into how to respectfully work with clients who come from different backgrounds than us, who don't share our lived experiences. So we're really going to focus our attention on solutions and strategies to prevent harm in bilingual and multicultural evaluations. And we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time.